Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for your faithfulness. We thank you for how big you are and how great you are. And we just thank you for this morning and ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word and you'd open our hearts and our minds to who you are, to your character. And God, would you teach us this morning and allow us, as we see you more clearly, to be people who represent you well. So we thank you and give you this time now in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you. Uh, middle of summer. I love this summer weather, a little bit of humidity. I grew up as a baseball player. So this is, and I, I lived all over the country. And to me, this is baseball weather when it's just too hot to be out there playing, but we had to anyway. Um, and that's what it reminds me of. I, I am one of those people who, that is my favorite sport. Don't judge me. Um, and, and so loved my years of playing baseball and, and going to games. I remember from a little age, I was at uh, living in Minnesota in kindergarten and first grade, and and I can still tell you the starting lineup of the Minnesota Twins from when I was in first grade. I don't even think people who played on that team know what the lineup was, but I still remember it. And, and I remember this time when I first went to, uh, there was a new stadium built when I was in about first grade, and it was kind of this new cutting edge thing. It was called the Metrodome, which has since been torn down, but at the time it was it was, uh, you know, a cool thing. And, and the Metrodome was a, a domed stadium, but it was held up with this canvas roof that was held by air pressure on the inside. And I remember as a little kid when my family said, hey, we're going to go to a Twins game. And I remember their drive down to Minneapolis and getting to the stadium and, and pulling up and getting out of the car and seeing this giant building and the eyes of a first grader is like the biggest building in the world. It was this giant cement structure and had these red pillars that held it up on the outside and this bright white domed canvas roof that looked like a big marshmallow on top of the city. I remember that clearly through my eyes and as we walked closer to the stadium, it just got bigger and bigger. And I remember when we opened the doors and when you open the doors of the metronome, because the roof was held up by pressure, the wind was in just huge gust of wind that would blow through those doors. And I remember feeling that wind and thinking, what is going on inside here? And we walked inside and then we were in the hallways of this cool building and I was about to see this field, the stadium. And we walked through the hallways and it was filled with people wearing their twins hats and jerseys and, and getting all their supplies to get ready to watch the game. And, and I remember that moment when you turn the corner and the opening to the field is there. And I walked through that opening in my little first grade body. And I remember it starts, there's just this glimmer of light shining through. And as you walk, it gets bigger and bigger until you walk, step inside and I could see it. This giant stadium at the time I thought was the most glorious thing on earth. <laughs> the Metrodome, yeah. And I remember the blue seats that covered and the green grass and the bright white ceiling. And it was this moment thinking like, this is the coolest, biggest thing I've ever been in. That started uh, a whole lifetime of loving baseball and loving going to stadiums. Uh, it's something that I still do to this day because I enjoy seeing all the different stadiums. And every new stadium I go to, I have that moment where I turn that corner and that glimmer of light is there and you walk through it. Uh, a few years ago in, in September 6, 2001, my wife and I 
to be exact. My wife and I went to Mecca for baseball, which is Fenway Park in Boston. And uh, I'm a Red Sox fan. As a military kid, you have to pick a team and stick with it, and I did. And so uh, Red Sox have always been my team. And I remember when we went to that stadium, we got off the subway, and I felt like that little first grader again. I remember walking around the corner and seeing Fenway Park, which is not even half the size of what the Metrodome was, but it's a small old baseball field built in 1912. And we could see the brick facade and people milling around, and you could smell the peppers and the onions grilling from the sidewalk vendors putting them on the hot dogs. And you could hear all the noise of people selling shirts and hats and the guy in the corner with the cooler selling $1 bottles of water and $2 bags of peanuts. It was everything you need in a baseball game. And I remember going through and handing them our tickets and walking into the gate at Fenway Park, the most important building in America. And so we walked through the gates and the hallways are small. It's an old building, but the familiar smells of hot dogs and popcorn and the smell of beer in the air thinking, oh, we're at a baseball game. And, and, And we walked down the hallway and got to our entrance. And I remember turning that corner, and just like when I was in first grade, I saw a glimpse of the field. Now, i got to tell you something about Fenway Park, by the way. I knew everything about that stadium. I could tell you before we got there that from home plate to left field, it's 310 feet down the line. And 310 feet, you get to this thing called the Green Monster, which is 37 feet, 2 inches tall. And that Green Monster fence goes all the way down until it's 380 feet from home plate, where it drops down to only 17 feet high. This is relevant, I'll tell you in a minute. And so from that point, it juts out to 420 feet from home plate, is the furthest point away in the playing field at Fenway Park. I could tell you that from there, it comes in a little, drops down to only 5 feet high as a fence, and goes all the way across. It wraps around the corner to the most unique corner in all of baseball, where to hit a home run from home plate to right field, it's only 301 feet away. The fence is only four feet high. It's called Pesky's Pole, if you can hit the ball around the pole for a home run. I could tell you all of that, because I knew it well. I also could tell you that there's 37,673 seats in the stadium. I knew that. I knew that they were a sea of green seats everywhere. And I also could tell you in center field, there's this, this section 42 Row 37, seat 20, to be exact. There's this one red seat in the middle of the sea of green. That one red seat is 502 feet from home plate. And that's where on June 9th, 1946, Ted Williams hit a home run that landed there, which they believe to be the longest home run ever hit at Fenway Park. I could tell you all that. I've seen it, I studied it, I knew it. But that day, September 6, 2001, when my wife and I were there, we turned that corner. I saw that little sliver of the field. And we walked up the stairs into the field and it opened up. And there it was. A picture of what we will all see one day in eternity in heaven. Um, (laughs) I could see the field. The green monster was right in our view. The green grass, perfectly manicured, was cut. The reddish-brown dirt was flawless. The bright white uniforms of the Boston Red Sox with the one red stripe down the sides, it was all there. And now it no longer was through TV. It wasn't on a book. It wasn't a description. It was something I could take in with my eyes. 
And though I could tell you everything about it until we stood there and smelled what it smelled like and felt what it was like to actually be there, it was an incomplete picture. This morning we're beginning a series that will take us through the rest of the summer that we call God Is. And it's just a reflection on the character of God. And through this series, we're going to be studying different, we're going to use some psalms that we're going to look at these ancient poets and writers and their descriptions of who God is. And it's kind of like describing a baseball stadium. They would tell you all the dimensions, all this thing that they could, all these descriptions of who they believed God was, but until we walk through it and experience it for ourselves, it's just pages and just words. But so this morning and through the summer, what we want to do is explore those words. We want to explore those descriptions and see through the eyes of these ancient poets how they described who God was. And the invitation for you and for me is that it could move from just being descriptions to something that we experience. Like a kid walking through, or like me, still a kid, walking through those doors and seeing the stadium and experiencing it for yourself. So that is what we will begin this morning, and we will uh, go back to Psalm 96 that was already read for us today by Lars. Um, I, I asked Lars to do it so that we could have someone with a nice manly voice read that. I mean, you know, there's more power when he reads it. But um, So we're going to be studying Psalm 96 this morning. And we're going to look a little bit into this as, as these ancient poets and writers are trying to explain their experience of God. Now, before we even get into any more... When you think of God and some descriptions of God, what are some words that come to mind? Just shout them out. What are some words that describe God? Mighty, holy, merciful, gracious, patient, all-knowing, creator, loving, benevolent, savior, Creative, you two are going at it right here. Who has more? Come on, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, creative, inspiring. Yeah, you have a lot of the ones I thought. Of. I thought of powerful, holy, majestic, glorious, just, righteous, omnipotent, present. He's spirit, forgiving, merciful, compassionate, jealous, omniscient, wise, good, a provider, a judge. See, when we think of all these descriptions, though, one thing that we're going to find as we enter into this series is that all of our descriptions still come a little bit short. Skip Mean, who's the dean of Divinity School, says this, God does not come to us in nicely defined, rationally explained thought categories. God breaks all the rules, clothed in human form, yet holy. He's more terrifying than can be imagined, yet compassionate. He's invisible, yet revealed, judging, yet merciful, sovereign, yet humble. No matter where you look, God breaks all the molds. So this morning as we begin a series through some of the Psalms and look at some of these descriptions of God, we need to begin with the understanding that even the best descriptions, it's still going to come fall short because God will break those molds. But still it's part of our worship to 6. As we begin, 96 is, uh, when we read the Psalms, it's important that we understand a few things. The Psalms are a part of a section of scripture, and they're an allegory and hyperbole and uh, the kind of poet, poetic techniques that are used. There's alliteration in that. So, writings about God. And this Psalm in particular, Psalm 96, is part of a genre of Psalms. There's about seven different types of Psalms, essentially just intended to describe God and to worship Him. It's a call to worship. 
This psalm, we believe, is probably written by King David, and most likely it was written by David in in an event in his life when he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant of God into Jerusalem to dwell in Jerusalem. And we're going to get to that story in a little bit as the background, but it's important to know when was this psalm written, by whom, and what was the circumstances, so we can kind of understand a little bit of that. Now, in poetry, or in these psalms, there's a lot of intentionality about how they're written. Just like you, any of you who uh, study poetry today, or write poetry, or English teachers who force some of us to learn it, um, you would understand that there are techniques that are consistent. And this psalm is broken down into three parts. It's very intentional. And the three parts, and if you'd like to follow along in notes, I have those for you already. He, he breaks it into what I call three different cycles um, in this psalm. And each cycle contains some verses of worship or a call to worship, followed by some verses that are witness or, or evidence of God's character. So there's a call to worship, and then right after that there is, essentially there's reasons for why we should be worshiping. And it's divided into three different cycles of worship and witness. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's begin with cycle one in Psalm 96. The first three verses are part of the worship part of cycle one. It says this, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. So the first three verses essentially are just saying, worship God, sing to him, proclaim goodness of God. So let's worship, worship, worship. It's a call to worship. Then he enters into the next section of cycle one, which is a witness of his character. It says, because, why should we worship? Because God, or great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For gods of the people are just idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So the first, it begins by saying, let's worship, let's talk about him. And the second part is the why. Because he is great, because he's creator. He's not like the other gods. Now let's take a moment to pause in this story. Because we need to understand the background for what's happening here. Now I mentioned that this psalm was written when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant, essentially it's, you know, it is, Raiders of the Lost Ark depicts it in the movie, and they actually probably do a very accurate job of of redesigning it. And, And so the Ark of the Covenant was something that Israelites had as a part of their worship, and it represented the presence of their God, Yahweh, or the Creator God. They had one God. It, it wasn't their God. There was no image in it that, that looked like what they believed was God. It was just simply an ark, and inside there were some items that were part of their heritage. But it was to be used as a reminder of God's presence with them. If the ark was not there, that didn't mean that God was not present, but they used the ark of, as a symbol of worship to know, okay, God's presence goes with us. And it was very common in the ancient world that you would have things like this. The one difference was a lot of, most other countries, they wouldn't have an image or they wouldn't have an item to remind them. They would have an image of their God or they would actually think it's their God, a statue that somehow depicted the the likeness of what they believed their God looked like. So you have to know that this ark was really important to the Israelites. Now, it was important to them too that it was 
in the center of their country or in their city where their temple was hoped to be built one day. But at the time, it was outside of their land. To get a little bit more context, though, before David brought it in, one generation prior to that, the Israelites were in a battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines defeated the Israelites. And when they defeated them, the Philistines took this Ark of the Covenant of God and took it from them. And that's in 1 Samuel chapter 5, if you'd like to do the background to that later on to see if I'm telling you the truth. And so you can read it on your own. But so the Philistines win this battle. They take the Ark of the Covenant that represented Yahweh's presence and they did something that was again common in the ancient world. Is they took this Ark and they put, placed it into the temple of their god called Dagon. And the Philistines believed in a pantheon of gods. There was multiple gods and some stood for the god of, uh, of fertility or of harvest, of rain, and they had gods for all kinds of different things. Now Dagon for the Philistines was their, their high god that mostly controlled the crops and things like that. And the gods in the ancient world were always gods that needed to be appeased. You would bring sacrifices to your gods so that they would be pleased and so that they wouldn't be hungry and so that they would take care of you and your reign. You would manipulate your gods. Your gods, you had to appease them in their anger. And all of these things that sound very human-like, but that was most of the gods of the ancient world. That's how it worked. Dagon was no different. Now what they did when the Philistines defeated the Israelites they took the Ark of the Covenant and placed it before Dagon in Dagon's temple. The purpose of that was to bring humiliation upon Yahweh and the Israelites. It was intentional to say, we beat you on the battlefield, now we're going to embarrass your God by having to dwell in our God's temple. And the story goes in 1 Samuel chapter 5 that the next morning they woke up and Dagon, this image carved to look like their God, was on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistine priest came in there and said, well, I don't know what happened, but let's pick up our God and set him back up. He fell over, don't know why. So they picked him up and set him down. The next morning, the Philistine priests went back to their temple and they found Dagon tipped over again. Only this time when he fell, his head fell off and his hands fell off. And in the words of the great movie, Dumb and Dumber, how did he die? I don't know, his head fell off. And so, <laughs> glad some of you are tracking with me on that one. That's good. And so they walked in and his head fell off. He was on his face. And that was a symbol, losing your hands and your head was a symbol of losing all your power and being defeated before the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines then started suffering some, some plagues and they knew we got to get this Ark of the Covenant out of here. This is bad news for us. So they built an, uh, a cart, they placed the Ark on it, attached some cows to it and, and hit the cows and said, wherever you take it, if you take it out of our land, it's from God. And they brought it up to the Israelites and they said, okay, that was God's presence was there. Let's not mess with that anymore. So now, take that story. David one generation later, is taking the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He's singing praises. He's saying, God is great, but notice stanza one. He is not like the other gods that are made by hands. He is the creator of the heavens. He's created all things. He is not weak like the other gods. See, the first part that we learn here in Psalm 96, in this worship, is David's worship or the witness in his worship is connected to his remembrance of who God is. 
Often in our lives, if we want to really worship and witness about God's character, it needs to be tied to our remembrance of, his, of who He is and His faithfulness. Has there ever been a time in your life where you felt like, I just haven't been experiencing God lately. I just haven't sensed His presence. I don't know, some of us in the Christian world, we call it going through like a dry season or a season where there's dryness in your soul. And maybe you think, I, I don't know why. I try to worship, but I just don't, I don't feel like God is there. And, and sometimes what we do is we think, well, maybe I need to read the Bible more and, and memorize more verses or pray a lot more. What do I need to do? But here David's given us a hint of what we need to do. We need to remember those times in our lives where God revealed himself to us. Remember. See, the witness in our worship is tied to what we remember about God. And David, in this point, they were remembering as a nation that God showed up in their story as he battled against Dagon, this other God, and he won. They wanted to remember that. For me, I think, I, I've been involved in, in vocational ministry for over 18 years now. I know. I, I started when I was 10. And so I've been doing it for quite a while. And there's times when I think, man, how many worship sessions have I sat through? How many talks have I given? How many have I listened to? So many, and sometimes it gets very routine. And sometimes it's hard to feel like, God, I just want to sense your presence and experience you, but sometimes it gets so routine. And for me, often what I have to do is think back to the time when I feel like God was most present. I even think of early days of ministry. I was in college and I was working as a waiter, I was a full-time student, and I was also a junior high director. And I was working at this church, and, and the worship pastor was uh, like two years older than me, so we were good friends. And I remember we'd sit around and read scripture and just tell, you know, about what we're learning about God. And there was just something electric about that time in life. And we'd bring, go to youth group and I'd see these lives change. It was in this low-income neighborhood. We had a lot of kids involved in gangs and just different things. And we were seeing all this transformation and these lives being transformed. And it seemed like every day was a new adventure. It was so exciting. We'd be praying and asking the Spirit to lead us and, and, and to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And something about those days were just wonderful. We even had this thing where we often worked because of that our multiple jobs, a lot of times my office hours were like 10 or 11 at night till 1 or 2 in the morning. Is this, you know, college? Is this the way it goes? And so I'd be in there and the worship pastor, he would work the same hours and we'd have nights where we'd just start talking and praying and there's nothing creepier than a church in the middle of the night too. I don't know why. But um, so we'd kind of freak each other out and then just keep praying. But in this neighborhood, I tell you, it's not like the nicest neighborhood that I've ever worked in. In fact, it was the least nice neighborhood I ever worked in. I remember one night, too, so he looked out at his car. We used to, like, look out the window and run to our cars when it was time to leave. I know, I'm a brave man. And, and so, something about it. And, but one night, we looked out, and we had been praying, having a good night. We look out, and there's, like, three kids on top of his car smashing it in and just jumping. And, and I thought it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> And, and we still think back to those days and we'll laugh about the time his Honda Accord just got smashed up in the middle of the night at the church office. And, um, but when we think back to those days, the response wasn't, oh, let's go get those kids. It was, let God do so, a work in their lives. And we pray and think it was just a different season. So for me, there's times when I need to remember. When my worship runs dry, I need to remember 
the times when God's presence seemed real. For you, maybe it was tragedy you went through. Maybe it was great victory you went through. If there's times in your life to to reflect back on the character of God, remember those times when you connected. And let your worship respond, be a response to your remembrance of who God is. Because our worship often does flow through our, from our memories of God's character, his faithfulness, his moments, and those moments of faith in our lives. And that's what was happening with David and the nation here. Let's remember that God was faithful. Let's move on to cycle two. Cycle two begins in verse seven in Psalm 96. And you'll notice he goes back to worship now. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. So that's the worship part. Now the ascribe is basically like bring or give credit to. Bring, give credit to God for having glory and strength and, and might. Worship the Lord in his holy attire. It's a way of saying in all that he's dressed in, in all of God's character, in all of his splendor, think of that and worship God with all of that tied up and wrapped up together. And then he says, tremble before him, all the earth. We're going to get to that in a moment. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. This is the witness part. Verse 10. The Lord reigns. Indeed, the word is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity or with fairness. So the worship part is, worship God. Think of all of his bigness. Tremble before him as you worship. And know that he cannot be changed. He will not be moved. He will judge the people, but with fairness. Now, a couple things. Again, David's story. Let's jump forward now. The ark was with the Philistines. It now is in the land of the Israelites, but still not in Jerusalem. David had one attempt at bringing the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. And the first attempt in 2 Samuel now, chapter 6, he failed. He refused to do it the way God instructed them to transport the ark. He did it the the way the Philistines did it. They put it on a cart. They tried to pull it into town that way. One of their um, worshipers reached out and touched the ark, which was forbidden, and he fell over dead. David got angry at this moment and left the ark there. said, let's leave it. I'm not fit to have the ark with me. Now, if you want to know more background to that story, last summer we did a series called Things That Make You Go, Hmm? And we studied those kind of stories in the Bible that are hard to understand. Week one is that story. So I'm not going to get into it now, but if you like the background, go online and you can see, or listen to week one and hear that story in its entirety. But the point of what David now, he saw that. And what he learned through this experience was that God's holiness also means he's other than. He demands a response that's different. It's not to be flippant. He was reminded to look at God and say, you are not like other gods. You have a way of living that is intentional. And I need to take you serious, God. David learned through this event. Now look at this. Do you think that verse 2 or stanza number 2 of this, cycle 2, I believe is part of that event. Knowing that God is holy. David learned that through that event. He's big. He's other than. He's not like any man-made God. And he's to be taken serious. Check. Uh, I have Isaiah chapter 6. We, we see a, a similar thing happen. I have it on the screen for you. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet has this image of the, uh, of the 
presence of God. And he says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted. The train of God's robe was filling the temple. Seraphim, which are like an angelic beam, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, these angelic beings were worshiping God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is he. And the whole earth is filled with God's presence, his character, his likeness. You can see it everywhere. His glory is everywhere. And when they said that, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. So the earth was shaking. It was trembling. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The unclean lips thing is a a way of saying I'm a sinful person, unworthy. So here he says, Woe is me, which I always love in Hebrew is, Oi, li. So if you want to say, Oi, that's woe is me. So um, when he says this, he says, Oh, I am doomed to be in the presence of this holy God, because I am an unholy person. David learned that that should be his response too. Our God is so big, he's approachable, but also he is other than, not to be taken flippantly. C.S. Lewis described him as, is God safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Look what David says though in Psalm 96 at the witness part. He says, worship God in his holy entire. Tremble before him. That is the proper response in worship. It's a tremble before God. But look at, because why? Because he reigns. The world is firmly established. In other words, it's not being moved. And he will judge the peoples with fairness. See, our God is big. He is not safe, but he is good. He's fair. I want you to see the rest of Isaiah. So Isaiah stood before God and said, I shouldn't be here because I'm sinful. He understood the awe part, the worship part. I don't belong with you. But now look what happens next in verse 6 and 7. I have it for you on the screen. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. He touched my mouth with it, with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your, sin, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And this is just symbolic language of the coal was purifying and taking his sin away. In other words, God was saying, I have the power to remove your sin. Do you belong in my presence, Isaiah? No. Are you worthy of me? No. Am I too holy for you? Yeah. But am I fair? Yes. I'm fair. I'm good. And he knew Isaiah's heart. And he said, I can take your sins away. David experienced this from God when he brought the ark in the first time and they treated it flippantly and someone lost their life. David learned, I should stand in awe of you, God. I failed this. But he learned that God is not irrational in his judgment. That he's fair. He is good. And he's to be worshipped that way. What we learn in that cycle there is that worship is connected when we place God on his rightful throne and we come off of ours. When we stand before a holy God and we put him where he belongs and we come off of that throne, that means that we can judge. 
That throne that means that we can understand all things. That throne that says we have the right to tell you, God, how you should be working things out. When we step off of that throne and trust God and his rightful place, we can worship. David learned that the hard way. He saw the life of someone was lost. And he learned, wait, I was playing God. He came off his throne and said, let's put you back where you belong, Yahweh. And he could worship. Let's look at cycle three. It begins in verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. So you see again, now it's back into worship. Let heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Now obviously, this is poetry, okay? Some people have tried to say, oh, you can hear this tree singing. Well, in a way, sure, but... This is poetry, saying all creation is singing and declaring God's goodness and who he is. They're declaring the image and likeness of God in creation. So let all of creation be excited and worship God. Why? The witness part is verse 13. Before the Lord, because he's coming to judge the earth. There's that judge word again. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. So righteousness there means he will judge the world according to his standards and he'll judge the people in truth. In other words, God's coming and he will set things straight and all creation can worship and be excited for this. All of creation can celebrate because God is coming to set things the way they are intended to be in the original creation. The rocks will cry out. The trees are singing. The ocean's roaring for God. I love the way Jesus responds in Luke chapter 19, verse 40, when people are singing praises to him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees say, Jesus, tell them to quit worshiping you. And he says this, I tell you, if these people become silent, the stones will cry out. In other words, the rocks will worship me. What does that mean? Let me show you one more thing. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and I'll tell you what I think it means. For sin, Paul writes this in Romans 1, 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. In other words, creation declares the, the character of God, the likeness of God. Does God look like a rock? No, but when you're out in nature... Can you see that God is big? When you look upon a mountain, you climb up to the top of Mount Whitney, you know that you are small and there's something bigger going on. This last week, my family and I, uh, at least one of them was up at Hume Lake. The rest of us went camping at Big Sur, which is one of the best places to camp in, in California, I think. And we were up at Big Sur, and one night everyone went to sleep, and I was laying out in the hammock and looking up, and there's a giant redwood tree and just a little gap in the trees where I could see the stars and it's moments like that where you realize creation is calling out who God is. The stars are reflecting that there's a bigger God out here. That there's something majestic and and creation itself speaks of who God is in those moments. For some of you, it might be sitting on a surfboard at sunset while the pelicans are flying by and it's a moment when you say, this reminds me that God is really good. For some of you, it might be hiking out in nature. Some, for some of you, it might be at a mall. No, I'm kidding. You can't be there. Uh, <laughs> Look around everywhere. We see that God reminds us of who he is. Creation tells of his character everywhere. 
Now let me throw one more thing in for you. God has another part of creation that is designed to declare his character, and that is you and me. We're part of his creation. We aren't as beautiful as a sunset or majestic as a mountain. I'm sorry if you think you are. I hate to burst your bubble. (laughs) You're not. But you and I have a responsibility to declare God's character, just like the trees remind us. Just like we see order in the universe and, and, and we see design and we see creativity and we see beauty, we see goodness all around in you and in, when the world looks at you and me, they can see the fingerprints of God as well. That's how we're designed. And all creation can cry out and worship because we know that it's not the way it's supposed to be. Even as we try to declare God's character, even as we do our best to display His glory through our lives, we still know we're falling short and something is out of order, but we can rejoice because we know the Creator that we can reflect is coming and will set things straight and He will do it His way. And His way is better than any of our ways. And we can rejoice in that. We're going to ask the worship team to start making their way up. And the question for us this morning is, how do we respond? For some of you here today, you need to respond by remembering those moments in your life when God revealed himself to you, the moments when he felt close, and you've got to go back to that. For some of you, maybe it's seen having a view of God that's bigger, that you say, oh, you are holy and other than, you are not like the man-made created God. For some of you, maybe it's just resting and enjoying that God's showing His face all over the place. And then as we learn and dwell on the character of God and who He is, the question then is, how does that change how you live? See, I was thinking, before we finish with these songs, one of the things for me is, uh, before I came here to Seacoast, I had a, a season where I was just working in a, not in a church, and I was attending a church for about a year, about 10 months. And during that time, God really used it to help reveal more of his character to me. See, it was this pretty large church. It was about 2,000 people. Um, there was about 1,000 in the worship center when we were there. And one day, the, uh, the pastor was, was sharing, and he, he came to a point where it was pretty challenging stuff. And he said, if this is relating to any of you, and, and God is speaking and needs to work in your life in this area, go ahead and stand up where you are. And I remember thinking, that that will never work in a room this big. Like, people aren't going to stand. Are you crazy? There's all kinds of people looking. And across the room, there's hundreds and hundreds of people stood up asking for prayer. Right where they were. In a mega church. Didn't make sense to me. What are they doing? And then he said, if you're around these people, I want you to gather around them and pray for them. And I thought, that's not going to work. People don't want to do that. This is Sunday morning. We don't want to get involved in that kind of stuff. And I looked and around me, people from everywhere gathered around and were praying for the people sitting next to them. Were all those people qualified to pray? I don't know. It doesn't matter. (laughs) But one of the things I realized and I kept learning time and again, week after week at that church, was my view of God was I wanted to program him. 
when it came to a church setting, I wanted to say, God, this is how you rationally will work in the lives of people. This is how I want you to look that's not embarrassing to an outsider. This is, uh, you know, what will make people comfortable. And what I learned is that pastor reminded us, and he's a friend of mine, and it, but had this just humility and boldness. It reminded me that God cannot be contained by your programming, Ryan. In fact, stop doing that. And start believing that he will transform lives his way, the way you used to see it. Quit containing him. And it transforms so much of how I respond to God when my view of him changes. When I'm reminded, oh yeah, (laughs) my box is kind of too small for you. And I start to experience him like that first grader walking into the Metrodome. Like that young father going into Fenway Park for the first time. No longer was it just described to me, but I experienced it. And it transformed me. Let God's character transform you as you step out and respond. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for how big you are, how holy you are. We thank you that you're so big and so good that you can even deal with our failures and our inadequacies the times when we place you into these small little boxes, the times when we can describe you on paper, but we won't let you reveal the full field to us. But God, you still call us to you. And so Lord, as David sung out in the Psalms, just these songs of praise, let us be a church that lifts you up and praises you. Let our worship be a witness to who you are. Let our worship be a witness to your character. Let our worship be a witness that draws others to you, God. And so now I ask as we end this time reflecting through song, God, that you'd reveal yourself to us. For some, perhaps this morning, they need to be set free. Set free from a life of trying to contain you. And for some, God, they need to be set free from a life of running from you, pretending that they don't see you, but everywhere they look, they know you're there. God, would you draw our hearts to you now? Speak to us in this place. Amen. As we end with these songs, I just want to ask you to take a moment to reflect, and when you're ready to join in, stand with us and join in, and let's sing out about God's greatness.